Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different starting over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. I want to start this episode with a question and that question is what would your life look and feel like if you were not held back by low self-worth? Would you dare to finally start that business or put yourself forward for that promotion? Would you stop interpreting obstacles or setbacks as yet further evidence of your inadequacy? Would you gain time? By not second-guessing your decisions or sitting on the fence for so long, not taking any risks? Would you find more emotional balance? Would you set better boundaries with family members, friends, colleagues? And would you be able to access more joy, more contentment and more inner peace? I genuinely believe that there is so much to be gained from healing your self-love struggle. And our guest on the podcast today is really a testament to that. Sophie Deer is a self-worth coach and yoga teacher who went through a series of big wake-up calls that low self-worth had in fact been in the driver's seat of her life for a long, long time. She was working super long hours working in TV in London that led to burnout, insomnia, anxiety, health problems, And she really shares in this episode her lessons and her learnings in healing her low self-worth and creating a more authentic, fulfilling and balanced life. We also discuss some of the ways you unintentionally reinforce your low self-worth with your behaviors and with your language even. We talk about failure and how failure is a part of growth and success, not evidence of your unworthiness. How you can turn your inner critic into your inner coach because of course positive self-talk is absolutely everything and some of the traps that perfectionists also need to be aware of with the self-development industry. So I hope this episode brings you one step closer to ending that self-love struggle and creating the life that you really really want. So important and if this does help you or you know anyone who it would help I would be ever so grateful if you shared this episode with them or took a moment to leave me a quick review wherever you are listening to this. But with no further ado here is my conversation with Sophie. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Starting Over podcast. How I see this going is really being like a conversation between two girls who are finding their path and have woken up to the realization that low self-worth had been running the show for a long time and how we can actually break free of that and live a more courageous and authentic life. Oh yeah, I love that. I, the the idea that the low self-worth is like running the show without us even realizing it is such a kind of good point to start on. Yeah. Well, let's go. I want to go to the time where you were working in London in TV and you said you realized at some point you really were suffering from burnout. You had an insomnia, anxiety. Take us back to that time of your life. Yeah, so I was, um, I think I was about 28. I'd been working in TV for seven, eight years. I went straight into TV after uni. And I had actually had insomnia since I was 15. Um, Anxiety, I think, I, I wasn't diagnosed with it until I was 28. But I think it had been massively part of me for a really long time. And I think insomnia and anxiety kind of go hand in hand. Like I think if you've never experienced anxiety, but you you start to have a period of bad sleep, you lose a lot of sense of like perspective. And what's happening in terms of like not 
getting the sleep, not your brain isn't getting like the reset and the repair of all your emotions, what's going on mentally. And so it's, it's just made a lot of sense that the two kind of went hand in hand. But I didn't really realize that this was something that was going to cause me a lot of pain in it on a deeper level. I just thought, I don't sleep, but I've got to get on with it. It's just part of my life. And with that, I basically decided that I was just going to take sleeping pills. And I, I mean, when I say I decided, the doctors decided that for me. So um, I just started taking sleeping pills. I kind of got addicted to sleeping pills in my early 20s. I then kind of realized that that wasn't right. There's other things that then happen in terms of I, I drank so much to try and get myself to sleep. So I'd literally drink to try and pass out because I hated being awake at night. It causes, caused me so much anxiety. Mix this in with a really high pressure job. So 90 hour weeks in TV. Um, 90 hours. Yeah, I, we would do 11 day fortnights often. So you would be working five days on, two days off, six days on, one day off. And it was just insane. Uh, and I had an amazing time. There's so much I can say about TV that was incredible. And I had all these amazing experiences. I traveled, I met amazing people, you know, to be part of a creative industry. Wonderful, but just so unsustainable in terms of the the hours of work. And I ended up working on this job where I just knew something like something had to change because I turned up on the show. We just started filming. So you're in prep before you you shoot a, a, a show. And um, we'd, we'd moved from prep into filming and I just wasn't myself. And all of it had kind of been buried underneath the surface. Like I was very confident, was good at my job, uh, w was really pleased that I was doing really well in TV. So I was kind of masking it, right? But then this, I think it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, beginning of the week, started filming and I just could not function. I felt like I was hallucinating. I hadn't had any sleep really in 72 hours. And one of my bosses just said to me, so if this isn't you, go and do what you need to do. So I ended up going to this doctor who spent a good amount of time with me and he was like, we need to sign you off work and you're really very ill. Um, not only with the insomnia, he then diagnosed me with the anxiety. And I don't think I really took it seriously. I was like, okay, but when am I going to be able to go back to work? And he was like, I don't know. We, that's not how this works. We actually need to get you into regular therapy. You need to go and see a psychiatrist. We need to get you back on sleeping pills because you just have to sleep right now for your body to be able to function. And it was just this huge wake up call. Like I realized, wow, that this isn't something I can carry on with. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the job, the specifics of the work and how you got into that. What you did at uni. Yeah. So do you know what? I always wanted to be an actress. <laughs> since I was younger I wanted to be an actress I loved like performing and I just thought it was going to be like something that would be really fun to do that played to a lot of my strengths and I tried out for drama school and I didn't get in and I remember reading this thing um because I did sorry I did drama at university um reading this thing from Kenneth Branagh where he's like if you can't function without acting then go for it but if you can function don't go for it because it's such a brutal industry. And I was thinking, I can function without this. Like, I don't want this badly enough. And so I then thought, well, what about being behind the scenes? And so I started being a runner. Uh, I was a runner in Soho in production houses. I did that for kind of about a year. And then I managed to get on set. Like, it's a lot about who you know and networking and just trying to get, um, get in with someone. And so it took me about a year to actually get into a production and be on set. And I started as a runner and then I moved through the assistant director team. Um, and being on set, it's like, it's just mad. The, the time pressure that we used to have to um, predict timings by seconds. Like every, they want everyone to be so snappy because a minute costs so much money. And there's a lot of egos in TV, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. And my job role basically brought all the different departments together, like the props team, the, the hair and makeup, the costume, um, the, the sparks, the electricians, the, all the teams came together because of our team, because of the assistant director team. So you we were run, kind of running the show in a lot of 
in a lot of ways. And so I reckon I was just high on adrenaline for my whole 20s, basically, and caffeine because you'd and rock up on pills. set. Yeah, and sleeping pills and Red Bull and all of that. Like I would, on an empty stomach, have the strongest coffee at like 5.30 a.m. every morning just to get myself to, to function. I would never, ever do that now, you know. I'm like decaf girl through and through. But just to literally get through the day, it was like sugar, carbs, just such kind of unhealthy lifestyle. So, yeah, and then I, I worked my way up into – I ended up as a second assistant director. And, again, parts of me loved it. But it was just so unpredictable. You you work on, like, contracts. So you do – you might do a show for a month. You might do another show for six months. You might do something for a day or a week. So you're, you don't have any job security. And – so you're constantly looking to the future of when am I going to get the next job? And you're in fear. That's, that's how I felt. I was in fear all the time because if I didn't have a job, what did that mean to, to who I was? Like it was such a big part of my identity. So actually when I did leave that, it, and I'm sure you've spoken about this before, it was like this whole shedding of an identity. And I never realized it would be about that. But we attach ourselves like, you know, like I felt like I was this I was this woman doing really well, you know, really well in TV. And I had this cool job, even though it really wasn't that cool. But, you know, to other people, it seemed like glamorous. And I really cared what people were going to think. Now me being like unemployed with no idea what other job I'm going to do. And so, yeah, a huge gutting moment of what is my identity now? Did that moment come after the doctor got real with you about the fact that you actually need to take a break? Yeah, sort of. I think um, I think in some ways I was in shock for a little bit. Um, and actually it was someone else who pointed it out to me. So someone who had been in the industry, a woman who'd been in the industry, and she also got out. I went and spoke to her about it. And she said that what was really hard for her was that shedding of that identity and then, you know, moving into a different space, totally different job. And it yeah, it clicked to me. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to like re recreate something because and I think part of this work the self-growth work is not being so attached to your identity not being Absolutely. so attached to you know because we can shift a modern change and it's our identity isn't who we are truly our core it's just something we're kind of putting out there and something that people like to label us with you know yes and we often self-label as well mm. I mean I could see I recently went out in Geneva with a friend and we met these traders so very different interest industry to me working in finance and I could see immediately so my friend was single and I was like okay I'll be a wing woman let's see how this goes and I could see that this guy immediately wanted to put me in a box so that he could make sense of me you know it was kind of like okay so let me guess so you have a podcast and it's on these themes self-development spiritual growth etc let me guess and he said it like this let me guess. You also meditate, right? Let me guess. You might do yoga. Let me guess. And it was interesting because a lot of it lined up. But then at the same time, I was like, what is that impulse or motivation in us to seek to put labels on other people? And I think it oftentimes it's actually led by the same fear that you're speaking to there. People operate in the world from a lot of fear and having categories and ways of separating people knowing who's your tribe who isn't who's the in-group who's the out-group it brings people a greater sense of safety but of course there's a cost to that and a part of the cost is exactly as you're saying like I've built up now this identity other people have reinforced that of course by the stories that I share with them and their impressions or perceptions of what I do but now oh my goodness what is happening like this is all falling apart and something that I share on this podcast a lot is how sometimes those very moments that we perceive to be our breakdowns can actually be our breakthroughs because they open us up to the masks that we have been wearing for so long and the ways that we've been caught in our trance of codependency or of perfectionism or of high performance or of whatever and actually realizing gosh there's so much more to life than that and at what cost oh. is this coming? Because there is always a cost. You know, I hear you sharing that story now and you're saying like, there was a huge health cost for you. 
huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Something that I always want to like do my best to, I suppose, get comfortable with. It's like, what's the monster that is the fear, right? So let's say the fear is not being, not, not having that identity. And how can we just get comfortable not having that identity? So I always think like if my business now as a yoga teacher and self-worth coach, if that folded, I have to be comfortable with that because potentially that's out of my hands, right? And so even though that might sound like really drastic and scary, it's the idea of like being less attached, you know, and that's such a like yogic principle, but being less attached to these identities, being less attached to these labels, and I think what, what also happens as a result is you become more open as a person and you don't see someone as like the other and you're not labeling them, judging them, them so much. And what, what you can do is you can learn more from a sense of like shared human experience rather than putting you in a box and being like, okay, well, you're into meditation. You must be woo woo. We're not going to get on, yes. you know, and also the other ways that we we label these traders, let's say, like, you know, and like really seeing that we can, when we actually just strip it back to being human, we have so much we can learn from one another. But unfortunately, so much of what we're presenting is fear. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, something that's, that stood out to me in your story, and I think it really shows how fear can have such deep roots, is how you ended up becoming burnt out as a yoga teacher too. So I want you to walk us through that. The steps after you leaving TV and getting into becoming a yoga teacher. Tell us about that time and speak to the fear component as well. Yeah, so after having been signed off work, I would say I went straight into overdrive of, well, what am I going to do next? Didn't really even take a beat to properly rest to properly look after my body. Like I was, I was doing things to try and sort, I had all sorts of physical things that were going on that I now see was so linked to the mental, but I just was doing the tick box exercises, right? Like I knew I had to go to therapy. So I was going to therapy. I was intensely in therapy for a long time, like twice a week. And, but because there was just so much to kind of deal with like 30, no, at this point, 20, 28, 29 years of my brain working in one way. It, it took time, right? So there were so many kind of, yeah, tick box things that I was just doing in order to be in a better place. But for me, I felt I needed so much external validation still. Like I needed an idea of what my next job was going to be. I needed a source of income. I, yeah, I just really felt like I need to get on this. I need to hurry up and sort it out. So I went and did a personal training course. Then I did a yoga teacher training and then I did my Pilates teacher training I like went all at it I wanted to just be like super qualified and <laughs> which is like so classic there's so many yoga teachers it's so there classic yeah yeah who are like what other quali qualification can I get because it's like that again it's like coming from that sense of worth like if I keep adding on these things or adding on these labels then I'll be more worthy you know um and that's not to you know there's obviously a, there's a side of it. Getting these qualifications are great, but I think what we tend to do is go overboard. And actually, I mean, I'm slightly segueing, but actually just practicing, like teach, get out and hone your skill, own your craft and learn that way. But we're quite scared to do that. We're like, if I have more and more qualifications, then I'll be ready. But anyway, so I did that. And then I actually found it really hard to get a yoga teaching job in London. This was kind of a little bit before the boom of yoga classes in London. So this would have been 2016. So I sat out my own yoga class, rented a space, went around Fulham flowering, like literally going around being like, please come to my class. And I remember feeling solo. Like I was like, how am I turning 30? Because in 2016, I did turn 30. And I'm flyering for my class you know that's not really going to pay me that much money what am I doing but I stuck with it and from there as I got a bit of experience then I started to teach for, for some of the studios I was doing private classes but my whole thing was like say yes to everything I, I just felt like this massive need to prove myself massive need to prove myself so 
I ended up at one point teaching like 25 classes a week and I kept losing my voice. And it's like, I mean, I feel like that's such a sign from the universe that if a yoga teacher loses their voice, you cannot work, you know? And then when I wasn't working, I felt very guilty. And I kind of had taken a lot of the energy that I was approaching TV with into yoga. And even though I was practicing yoga myself, it hadn't hit me on a really much deeper level yet. It was like a very physical practice. I was becoming more aware of things, but I wasn't really implementing real deep changes. And then I lost my voice. I ended up losing it for like three weeks. And I was going to the doctors, had a camera put down my nose. They were like, there's actually nothing physically wrong with your voice. You are just so stressed. And also just on a a slight segue again, I lost my period around this time as well. And I went to this amazing woman, Emma Cannon, who I did acupuncture with. And she helped me get my period back. But she was like, you're so stressed. And I was like, but I'm a yoga teacher now. And she was like, no, you're still so stressed. And you're still not sleeping very well. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. And yeah, so I suppose that takes me up to basically completely burning burning out with not having a voice. And I just realized like something needs to change. So that was... That was actually a couple of years into my teaching journey. And that's when I decided that instead of just meditating every now and then, I was going to learn properly to meditate. And I went and did a course with the London Meditation Center and it changed everything for me. And it really really started. Yeah, it was just. And, you know, like the roots of yoga really is meditation. It's not the physical practice. And yet in the modern day world, it's like a physical practice. Yeah. So yoga led me to the meditation, you know? Yeah. So interesting. I remember when I started and I probably had the same thing. I was also attracted to London. I moved there voluntarily to go to university and I, because I sought a buzz, I wanted a buzz and I did not realize I had been living my life in survival mode essentially for a long period of time. And when somebody suggested going to yoga, the only thing I would do was like a power yoga class and that whole shavasana thing that you do at the end like f that like no way no one's getting me to lay down and relax I just couldn't and it's you know or yin yoga classes I was like oh what is this doing for my body I and I had no concept that that was actually exactly what I needed so it's ironic now my best friends always laugh like who you know now you're the one preaching this stuff when you were the one who was so adamant that there was no value in this so it's like ironic how sometimes those the huge changes actually come from the big wake-up calls because it's in fact the lesson that you needed to learn the most oh yeah I so resonate with all of that and shavasana as well especially I was like what are we doing I just didn't get it but yeah the idea that like unless we're being productive then we're not worthy like we I need to be productive and I need to I need to have something I can show for it. So rest, you know, as you say, like the the more relaxing type of yogas, I was like, "Ah, not interested. Mm -hmm. And what my body was needing and deeply craving was the rest, was the softness, was the, I talk quite, quite a lot about the masculine versus the feminine. And I was so in my masculine. I was all about controlling an outcome, pushing forwards, being super proactive and not understanding the value of the feminine which is the the being more in like a receptive mode, being less of the giver, being in that softer space, being able to let go rather than hold on, being in flow, allowing things to flow rather than feeling like we have to have every single bit of our plan figured out, allowing for the surprise and the spontaneity that just wasn't in my life at all. And it's like I've done this big, you know, 360 <laughs> or 180. yeah. yeah such an important point the rest and the softness as well you know something I have reckoned with even recently myself is I thought I could do rest in reality I couldn't because I continued thinking so I would realize that even now and I've been I I actually just shared last week you know, really vulnerably about my biggest fears and failures and realizing that I had in fact transferred the exact same mentality I had before into what I'm doing now because it's fueled by low self-worth and the fear and the scarcity mindset. And actually I realized that 
on weekends, for example, I wouldn't be able to just be and enjoy. I would be constantly thinking and strategizing or checking up on social media or making a connection or it, it was always there. So I actually wasn't giving my body the deep rest it actually needed. And I think mm. this is so, so common. I totally agree. It's 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 like we're having a day off work, but especially I think when you're you run your own business it's like you're never off you're always kind of thinking or like I don't know about you but like I'll be like I'll go for a walk and this is going to be my time in nature and it's going to be really great and then I put on a like wellness podcast and exactly. I can't switch off because I'm thinking I could use this for my business or I want to t- talk to them about this and we could collaborate or and so it's like finding the stuff that is actually like just nothing to do with work like I always make sure I I'm because I often love reading like the self growth books and then I'll read a novel, you know, to make sure that I'm actually balancing out with with stuff that's just for me. And this idea of like, it's just something that I think has been really integral to me, understanding what is for intrinsic value and what is for extrinsic value. So, so much of our lives are led by extrinsic value. Like, what can we show for it? What are we getting back in return from other people? And intrinsic value is stuff that we can do that we're just doing for the pure joy of it, like the pure pleasure of something that puts us in a flow state, something that helps us feel alive, like literally lights us up from the inside. And so for me, like something that I do really regularly is play my guitar Hmm. and I'm not doing it to play a concert or to get like super good at it or, and I just love doing it. I just really, really love picking up my guitar and I can be lost in it for hours and hours. And when we start to add little things like this to our day, it's just such a sign of of worth of like, I'm worth showing up for, for me, without having to be productive or achieve anything with this, but just for the pure, for the pure joy, because actually experiencing a moment of joy on your own to yourself, connecting with you is so beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to speak a little to your point about the tendency to listen to another podcast or thinking of, oh, I could collaborate with this or you let your little mind buzz away. And and I think for people who listening now who might be identifying with both Sophie and I, you know, you might have the perfectionistic traits and you might really resonate with the idea that you need to be productive and to be of value, at least at least unconsciously, even if you know you shouldn't be like that, that that's actually what's driving things beneath the surface. I think it is such a big wake-up call for people who start getting interested in self-growth or self-improvement or this whole self-help industry. I think you actually have to be really careful because so much of it can continue feeding the low self-worth that is lurking under the surface because you're approaching it from a place of, I need to fix myself. There's a part of me that is unworthy, that is broken deep down. So I need to learn more strategies about how to be more productive with my time or how to, and it's always the how-tos, how-tos, you know, that, and that was such a big learning learning for me too and something that in fact I still I still have to be very mindful of that tendency and recognizing when it's actually leading me off track when I'm following that same path again like oh no okay come back to center that isn't how you actually want to live your life in fact yeah so so true such a good point it just becomes another one of these things of how I'm failing you know yeah I'm not I'm still not enough because I'm not even getting this self-growth stuff right Yes. And I think it's like, I always say to people, it's like, really, it's the tiny things. And it's about going back to basics. So I think people often think it's going to be like this. Self growth is going to be this like one moment where we do something huge, and then everything changes. And it's actually like, I talk about tiny deposits of self worth, just tiny deposits of self worth every day and going back to basics. How can you create some time for you every day? What are you doing in that time? So for me, it's always meditation, a gratitude practice, an intentions practice, an affirmations practice, maybe some journaling, maybe a little bit of guitar, maybe a dance. You know, it's like these things, these small moments, it's just it's not the big revelation, you know. No. And I think it's being very mindful of 
the marketing because let's not forget that this whole industry is huge it's multi-billions worth every year and of course we need to be aware that sometimes the same business mindset that operates in other spheres is now being deposited onto this too so of course that that is still very ego driven fear driven and everyone wants to have their special program their special formula their never before seen miracle hack of what's going to change and It is just marketing. It really is. Like oftentimes it is exactly what you're saying, Sophie. It is the basics. It's the things that we do every day. It's not reading something else so that you find out, oh, what can I possibly do? It's like, no, this moment right now is where you need to be present and give yourself a bit more credit and a bit more self-love and a bit more of joy and playfulness and all the things that we know make us feel good. Yeah. I mean, anything that's selling you this miracle cure is just not as from my experience, it's just not possible. This is like, like I always talk to people about the fact that it's, it takes time. It is like work, you know, it is a certain amount of like energy and effort that you have to put into it. And seeing that as like, it's like you taking the responsibility on rather than it being again, an external thing that's going to fix you. No, it's way more about you understanding this work in like a conscious level mentally and then embodying it by how you're showing up what behaviors you're now learning um that you know like simple things what is the language you're using do you notice the way you start a sentence like for me I used to always start sentences being like I know this might sound really stupid but and I'd always just like caveat that by the way I might sound like an idiot just to you know save face and me saying that repeatedly was basically telling myself that I was an idiot. Yes. You know, so it's, it's such simple things of starting to see what's your patterning, what's your behaviors, why are you getting triggered? Another one is accepting compliments. Like learn to say thank you. Stop batting away a compliment. We always do it. Like, no, someone else helped me or I just got lucky. Just learn to say those two words. Thank you. Receive. And again, that's like the feminine, right? Receive, receive. I actually noted that down because even on this podcast, you know, I can see from different people I've interviewed, some people might say, does does that make sense? They'll finish their question with, am I making sense to you? That's another one, right? And I hear it a lot. And you can, it's a kind of like when your unconscious is showing, but people don't realize it because they've learned this behavior and it's so deeply ingrained. And you know, when I approach this personally, I do think there is such tremendous value in deep emotional healing, in the self-awareness journey of what it means, how this started, you know, what were the dynamics with your parents? How were you shown love when you were young? How did you feel love? But then I think what there is also such value in being aware of the behaviors that you do on the daily that can reinforce that low self-worth. And what you're saying here about the compliments and the prefix you know the the way you introduce a sentence by like oh feel free to ignore me but or like oh this might be a stupid question but like all of those things actually just bring it into your awareness maybe maybe you've never thought about that before now someone listening you're like oh gosh I I do that a lot like that can be such a small change but make huge gains over time It makes me think of actually one of my favorite podcast guests. It was with a Harvard psychotherapist named Dr. Luana Marquez. I love her work. It's very simple, very tangible. She brings psychology out of the ivory tower and really grounds it into like, what is this right now? And I was, I had, (laughs) I opened up about how I had been carrying around this sense of low self-worth for so long. But I didn't realize that there were certain behaviors that I was doing that would continue to reinforce that. And I had it on a little post-it note written on my laptop. And I was like, okay, I I realize that I'm doing this now. And what I would do is I would not accept taking imperfect action because the taking action was too scary. So I would be avoiding that by planning, researching, preparing, reading, learning, all of those things because they would make me feel productive They would feed that lower self-worth, but then it actually wouldn't lead to any tangible outcomes, really. I never felt ready. I never felt ready. Or I would pursue another big sparkly idea and divert my attention. Or I'd have an emotional breakdown. I can't do this. And the negative, the inner critic comes up again. Or I'd say, okay, I need somebody else who's more knowledgeable to come in and help me. 
And I sort of shared this with her and she said, oh my gosh, you've basically just outlined the four major routes that people take. And the thing is, every time you do that, you're just reinforcing that belief, essentially. You're teaching your brain, oh, okay, yeah, more evidence that I'm not good enough. Oh, yeah, that's uh, just a little extra dose of proof that I'm not cut out to do this. And those are some of the massive changes that we can make. Do you have anything to say on this, Sophie? Yeah, I mean, I think what you've just said is so relatable. Another one is like just the procrastination, right? I think it's also so deeply subconscious as well. And so basically so much of my work is like pulling the subconscious into the conscious mind. And uh, something that I think is a, like really helps a lot of my clients is like 70% rule. You just do your work to 70%. We're not trying to reach 110%, 70%. And this goes for anything, like the way you show up, that imperfect action. It's something that also what it does is it stops us getting out of our comfort zone. And what something I would say is that is a huge tip in building self-worth is get out of your comfort zone. And we can do this and build up to it, right? So I'm not asking you to get out of your comfort zone in the most scary way as a first step. It's like, how can you get out your comfort zone slowly and feeling like there are less consequences? So you're just building up to it, baby steps. So for example, with if you're setting a boundary, if you're starting to set boundaries and you've never set boundaries before, set a boundary with a, with a waiter. They bring you the wrong food. And then instead of just accepting the food and eating the wrong food, say to them, hey, I actually ordered something else. So you, it's like the low risk situations and then you build it up. Like, again, I wouldn't set boundaries with your family first up because family is where we get the most triggered. So it's these baby steps. Getting outside of your comfort zone is literally teaching you to approach your fear. And then what it does is that you start to settle your nervous system. You're not having such a big reaction to these things that feel scary. And you start to create proof in an internal way that I can do it. And also that messing up is okay. Like, I think that's something that is, is such an important point to realize is that like anyone who's made it and has, has been successful has messed up and messed up and messed up. Failure is part of the process. It's a non-negotiable. We have to fail. And so being willing to fail is a big part of this growth. Yeah. So something I know that perfectionists do a lot is avoid failure in a few different ways. First, they avoid even trying in the first place, like a total failure to launch. They have ideas of what they could possibly do, but just don't even attempt to do it. Second, they would get in stuck into the process, but then wouldn't see it through to completion because the inner critic would come up so strong that it would be like, that the, the first sign of a struggle, an obstacle, a challenge, it would just floor you. It would floor you and you would be at the mercy of that inner demon that's constantly telling you, oh, there we go again. Of course, you know, who were you to even try this in the first place? Of course, that was going to happen. There are a few things that show up. But one thing I realized myself recently was not not actually accepting or admitting failure and constantly redirecting to avoid it. And I actually had this moment where I said to myself, okay, I, I didn't meet my big goal. My big goal was to have this program set up. I gave myself four months to do it. I had support to do it and I didn't. And instead of running away from that, I let myself sit with that feeling. And it was the most incredibly healing thing because I felt the shame come up so strong. And my husband gave me a hug and was like, we could just laugh about it. And then he said, but I still love you. See? Like, I still love you. And it was ironic. I ended up being like in hysterics, laughing in bed, going like, oh my gosh, I was there making this huge thing out of it. Like, if I failed, if this didn't go to plan, everything would just collapse. You know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be lovable. But then the idea that your friends still are there for you, your your partner or whoever else, you know, I know we have different situations, but that that worst nightmare doesn't come true can actually be really healing. It's all very well to try to learn the lessons from other people by what they're saying. But sometimes there is such value in actually learning it for ourselves, like truly experiencing what it's like and knowing that, hold on, it's okay. Like I can actually believe this now. It could be the most liberating thing you've ever experienced. 
of so much to speak to in what you just said. Um, I think it's really important to sit, sit in the discomfort of failure and the discomfort of, you know, being afraid that people aren't going to like you or you're going to get judged or, you know, whatever it is that's associated with this failure. Sitting in that discomfort and actually allowing yourself to feel the emotions allows the emotion, emotions to actually process through us. The shame, the guilt, the disappointment, the sadness, the grief, whatever it is. This is something that is a huge, huge part of my work. What we like to do, so what our ego and our survival mechanism likes to do when we fail is attach a meaning to it. And that meaning, when we're in our survival mechanism, when we're in our ego, is often shaming us. But you're not, look, look at you, again, you're not good enough. It just proves you're not good enough. You're never going to get there. So why even bother? Why even try? These are the kind of things that the inner critic likes to do, right? So it's creating a meaning that is reminding us that our deepest fears are true, that we were right all along. Mm -hmm. what, what we have to get good at is sitting with the emotions without that story and realizing that that story is coming up for us and that thoughts are not facts. And I like to think of this, I, I like to think of it as like there's two parts to us. So you know how quite often we have these like internal dialogues that's like feels like a battle is going on inside of us. One is I call the beast, which is survival mechanism, ego, the inner critic. And one is the beauty. So we've got the beauty and the beast. The beauty is the part of us that does want more for ourselves, that that wants to accomplish our desires, that wants to that has like a place of wisdom and love and trust and the part of us that is cheerleading ourselves to keep going. And what we have to do is learn to create more space for the beauty and we have to dim down the beast. The beast is always going to be there. It is part of our reptilian brain. It is the part of us that lights up with any threat and any fear. But unfortunately, nowadays, instead of the threat being us running away from tigers the threat is a job loss or not or not reaching our goal let's say and so we have to learn practices to literally rewire our brain so that when failure happens our brain goes towards creating meaning that is helpful i always use the phrase like is this helpful or is this harmful and the harm is the meaning that we create which means that we are going into those deeper fears and limiting beliefs and the helpful meaning is creating a space for, hey, I failed, but failure is a part of growth. And I've been able to sit in this emotion and I've been able to move through it. And exactly as you said, I'm still loved and I'm creating a different meaning from this. And this is so integral to this work. Like what, what meaning are you creating in your life? Something happens and what are you taking from it? Are you going straight into a fear and into a, in a dialogue that is, shaming yourself or are you able to see that there is another meaning that we can create so and, and, you know a meaning yeah. that can that can, that can almost create a purpose you know yeah absolutely I mean this is where it just exemplifies the importance of this mindset work through and through like we live our lives predominantly through our mind our perceptions our interpretations of what we're experiencing and actually just that, that how you talk to yourself can make such a difference to your experience is enormous. Oh, it's everything. It how we everything. talk to ourselves is everything. Exactly. You said that this is where we live most of our lives is in our heads. So we have to become our best friend. We have to be our biggest cheerleader. We have to learn to speak to ourselves with kindness and compassion and love no matter what happens. And it's such a beautiful thing to learn because I mean, I'm, I'm coming from a place where I shamed myself with the TV move. I thought I was the biggest failure. I thought I'd messed my whole life up. With insomnia, I was telling myself that why could I not do something as basic as sleep? Because I was an, the biggest failure, that I, I wasn't worth being here. You know, I was so hard on myself. Mm. And I've now shifted that to the point where uh, my brain can't even go there. It's like such a dishonoring of my love for myself. My brain doesn't go there. Like I can't really? spiral into that shame. Yeah, it, like I have moments of it, but I don't spiral into the place I used to go to. 
So what's Never. changed? Tell me, tell me what's changed. <laughs> well, there's another starting over bit that I probably would Let's be a, a good place to talk about because that that really was my huge like, okay, stuff's got to change. This now. is it. This is it. So I had been in a relationship for 10 years. I was married for a year and a half and I was very much on that path in London, trying for a baby, buying the house, you know, like really moving forwards with all of that. And quite suddenly I went through a separation. And from that, I decided that I was going to move to Bali. I was going to move to Bali for three months and see whether after that I wanted to come back and get divorced or move forwards with the relationship. And I moved to Bali and like a week later, the borders closed. It was pandemic and it was this huge moment of healing for me as cheesy as that sounds it was this things started to come my way and I was learning about things like boundaries and codependency and I just decided that I really needed to take responsibility for why my relationship had broken down so suddenly so so badly you know and I took this time to really learn about my patterns the way I was relating how I was unhealthily relating to myself which then meant I was unhealthily relating to others and it just took me into this whole thing around self-worth because I realized that a lack of boundaries is massively to do with low self-worth lack of being able to make decisions low self-worth codependency low self-worth you know there's just so much that it was just pointing to me to this self-worth work and I thought it was also so interesting because so many people would say to me, you would never seem to be that candidate of someone who has low self-worth. I'm not shy. I've gone for things. You know, I've always been like very proactive. I've always gone towards my goals. But what was driving it was from a place of low self-worth, not from a place of higher self-worth. And it was like light bulb moment after light bulb moment. And it was like, a lot of work and a lot of effort and time and a lot of having to confront myself with, you know, all the ways in which I'd made massive mistakes, massive mistakes in my relationship. And I learned that in this process, you you do, it's quite natural to blame yourself for it all. But the idea is that you're not to blame, but you are responsible. So you're responsible to create the changes on a more conscious level in order to move forwards in a different way next time. Like you can't unknow what you now know, but at the time, maybe you didn't have the tools or the knowledge. So yeah, I just did a, a lot of work on myself being in Bali, not being in such a pressured kind of city living life, I think really helped. Yeah. That was, I suppose that was just like such a big spark for change in my life. And I just, my whole mindset shifted, but actually this is something that I was thinking about earlier. It's just come back to me. How I see it is it's not like I've become different in the sense of like my core is still there. It's almost like I've unpeeled the layers. Can I swear in this? Yeah. <laughs> the layers of bullshit that you just put on because of societal pressures and, and the way we're brought up and what we think is important to life without even looking at ourselves. We think, oh, we should go this path because everyone else thinks that's important and we're not looking at what's important to us. And so for me, it's always been like this, almost going back to who I really am. And mm. I think that can be encouraging for people when you're doing this self-growth work. It's not about transforming into someone totally different. It's actually getting back to the roots of who you are with all, without all the rubbish that we've, we've decided to put in our pockets and go, yeah, I'll take your anxiety. Yep, I'll take your depression. Yep, I'll take that pressure and I have it all and it will all be surrounding me. And now I can't breathe and I, now I don't even know who I am. So much exactly. of it is actually, who am I? What are my values? What are my wants? What are my needs? And also allowing those to shift and change. They don't have to be these rigid things. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, so, so many wonderful lessons that I've learned that have just enabled me to kind of, as I was saying before, it's like, I still can feel the fear and I can still have moments where I actually spoke about this recently on social media. Last summer, I had this moment, where I just frozen my eggs. And I had a massive hormone crash afterwards. And I went into this absolute denial about being divorced. My mind went crazy. And it was really tough. What but happened? I didn't. So it was the first time I'd been back to the UK in two and a half years. Everything reminded me of my ex-husband. 
it was almost like, you know, being in Bali, I was able to escape quite a lot of that. And then when I came back and everything just felt like London since I had been 23 had been with him everything everywhere I went you know and I was just grieving everything and crying and really trying to allow myself to cry and go through that grief process without being like okay this means that we should be back together yeah just allowing myself to feel the feelings because you can be sad and not want to be with them you know that real importance of and in all these moments it's not black or white and there was part of me that went into this denial that my mind was going off into this place of you know, what am I going to do? But there was still my voice of love and compassion that was able to, to, to realize that this was a moment, that this was a moment in time and that this was something I was going to shift and move through. And that at my core and at my truth, I know that my decision to be divorced was the right one. And that was in alignment to me. Because what do you mean when you say in denial, not in denial that actually happened, the fact that you did get divorced, what was it? What is the denial? The denial was more like this is the end. Because so in in grief, there's five stages and I would put the, what I was feeling in the category of denial. But it's, you know, there's obviously like real like nuances in what was going on in my head. It was like not accepting the loss of this person in my life. Not accepting that it was fully over hold, trying to hold on in some way and I am a very sensitive person I'm someone who gets very nostalgic about things and I think it was this this attachment to kind of nostalgia and and to what London and my life had had been for so long so it was it was, it was complicated in my, in my brain. And this was what, you know, when I'm talking about like going back to basics, like I knew that I couldn't outthink this, that this was literally just a moment in time with me being pumped full of hormones and crashing from that. What my body had gone through with the egg retrieval process, it's quite a lot. And I was able to see it. I was able to basically zoom out and see it as something that was going to be painful for a moment, but that I would, was going to move through. And I actually did move through it pretty quickly. It was like a probably like five days of it being pretty tough. But I was able to use my tools and I was able to see that there was a different reality rather than being fully immersed into it. Because I think if you get fully immersed into it, that's when you go, okay, right, well, now I need to fix and control this and I'm going to change this and, you know, be active. And I knew that this wasn't about being active. This was actually a part of the grief process and that I had to just be sad the denial was just part of the sadness and part of the grief exactly part of the grieving process I mean you're just summing up how healing actually works really it's just and there's something really beautiful in the simplicity of it because our mind does want oftentimes to complexify everything but actually there's such such wisdom in going like okay that this is not my forever this will pass, but this is a period of integration of space and time that I just need to grant myself in this moment whilst not getting totally swept away with it either. Yeah. And kind of something that I was speaking to before with the beast. So the survival mechanism only cares that you are passing on your genes and you're surviving, does not care whether you're thriving, does not care whether you're fulfilled or happy. So once you learn that, the the cool thing about it is like I could see that this is my survival mechanism literally being like because I've been through this this egg freezing process which in some ways is quite f- ironic right you think it would chill you out about wanting babies and it made it like hyped me up basically and so it's like okay I can see this for what it's for there's a huge part of me that is so inbuilt that is telling me that I need to have a baby of course that's going to then attach me to the the person that I had tried to have babies with that I had thought I was going to live with forever and have a family with to me it was like I could have these moments like laughing at myself even in the pain as well even in the difficult five days I was able to like step out and be like of course of course you're going into this complete crash and meltdown and sadness of course like this is what your survival mechanism deeply wants for you and so that's when we 
can see like the truth of the situation by being in that in that space of the the beauty and seeing it for what it is and just again accepting it accepting it that it's going to be a difficult moment and that again creating if you think about what we're talking about creating meaning what's the meaning I can create from this okay this was a tough moment but really necessary in my grief process it's not something I can skip and I'm proud of myself for actually feeling all the feelings and I'm going to get through this and I'm going to move on and I'm going to feel even stronger yeah and it really is the key to moving on yeah 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 do you have any do you have any fear of not meeting the right person of not having children I have had that a lot I would say that's been a huge part of my story and my I think especially having when I got divorced and that had been something I was actually trying for in terms of trying for kids. I would actually say weirdly, because obviously I'm now older, I'm 37 now. I'm the most relaxed I've been about it ever because I just have this sense of trust. Like my divorce was probably the best thing that happened to me in a, in the sense of all the work I've done or letting go of all the perfectionism, the pressure and all of that stuff, which actually was kind of, daily suffering for me and I've become my biggest cheerleader and I love the work I do I love being able to talk about all of this you know coming on this podcast it's all it's all such joy to me and there's a principle that I now really live by which is focusing on the energy rather than the outcome and this kind of goes to what you were talking about like your goal you know you had this four-month goal so what I mean by that is like I would love to have a baby I still totally believe it's possible for me. And I'm also kind of a, an acceptance that it might not happen and that's okay. Like I will, I will totally be okay. And I promise you that's taken a long time for me to get, yeah, get yeah. to, you know, it's, it's a, it's a been a really beautiful realization for me and I'm, I'm proud that I've got to that, but it's still, it's still a journey, you know? Um, so if I want a baby, what what's the energy surrounding that? If I want to be a mum, what's the energy surrounding that? Okay, I want to be nurturing. I want to be playful. I want to be open. I want to be connected. I want to be in a space of being able to be like relaxed and go with the flow because, you know, as far as I see with all my mum friends, you never know what's going to happen. So being able to be in that more flow space. So all of that energy I can actually bring into my life every single day. And so if that's my desire, focus on that, bringing that energy into my life, not focusing on the outcome because the outcome is actually not something I can control. For whatever reason, I might not be able to have a baby. So instead of focusing on, I'm going to have a baby by this time and this is my timeline, how can I bring a sense of playfulness, a sense of flow, a sense of nourishment into my life? How can I bring that connection? How can I embody the energy with my everyday life? Because the truth is we have now. We just don't know what's going to happen. And so if we're constantly living in the future, we're missing out on so many beautiful things that are here right now. And when I focus on that energy, so again, it's like a bottom up approach, right? I'm focusing on what I can control. I can't control the outcome, but I can control how I show up and the energy I can bring to things what tends to happen is things tend to come my way. Mm. Things just start to fall into place. And I know for some people that sounds so woo-woo, but there's a lot of science going into this now. And I would say Dr. Joe Dispenza is someone who really talks about this, this like these moments of like serendipity of almost becoming like a magnet to desires. And it's not going to be A to B. It's not like saying that like this thing is going to now pop up, but it's going to take you on a path that is the path that brings you that joy, that energy that you want. And it, it might not be the same outcome, but it's about, yeah, going inwards to attract the things that you want in your life without such um, expectation on outcome. So the how, the what, the when, the where, the timeline. Yeah. Oh, I 100% believe that, Sophie. I so believe that. And I've had so many moments in my own life where that's happened. And this is what you said back, to, looping back to the very start, you said, be open to the things that you that can come your way that you never anticipated, the serendipity, the spontaneity. I mean, you have to 
in some ways cultivate a bit of faith that that is a possibility for you. And just because you can't see it yet doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. But even just taking your example, you're going to have a much greater chance of meeting somebody and if you can show up in the way that you want to rather than being led by such fear and a, and a clingy and a tension and, and a pressure that you put on yourself, that's no way to live and it's not going to lead you to the outcome you want either. 100%. And it, and it really can be related in every single desire and goal. And yeah, it's a, re- it's a really beautiful way to to live life and it feels good. So someone I follow a lot is Abraham Hicks and like we should be noticing how we feel and how we feel isn't just reliant on the external. Actually, we can cultivate these feelings now. We can we can shift our energy. It's diligence, it's acting. It's like as in like okay, my energy is low. Let's shift my body. Let's move my body and get out of my head. It's actually taking the action steps in order to shift that energy. In. Absolutely. I'm going to move into the final fast few questions now, mm-hmm. Sophie. And I first wanted to ask you is, is there something that you used to believe that you no longer believe? The thing that kind of springs to mind is what is a successful life? And I really thought a successful life was in achievements and outcomes and in the sense of following the path that I thought I was supposed to go on, get married, have kids, have the house, have a good job. And my definition of success is just so different. It's like, how do I feel? Do I feel good? Am I of service to others? That's been like a a, a really beautiful one for me. And yeah, again, like how am I just showing up in the smaller daily moments? Like what is my present life looking like? rather than this attachment to the future. Yeah, I love that. You know, it makes me of a podcast interview that really deeply touched me this week was with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, Feel Better, Live More. He's a British doctor. And he did an episode with an Australian author, Bronnie Ware. And she wrote a really popular book about the five regrets of the dying. And it has had huge acclaim. And I listened to this and I thought, wow, what a reset moment for me because so much of it is even what you're just suggesting here, Sophie, about our ideas of success. Like she would say people would be on their deathbeds because she worked in hospices and with people who, you know, right at the end stages of their life. And she heard time and again, I wish I worked less. I wish I had the courage to live an authentic life, a life on my terms, not one that was dictated to me by other people or dictated to me by society. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings and I wish I'd allowed myself to be happier. And for me, that was just that, that moment of like, yes, like this is, this is a good life. This is a good life. Let's take that wisdom from other people and really soak this up and make choices that are not always fear-based. Yeah, 100% tapping into that beauty instead of the beast. Yeah. Second, what is a challenge that you've overcome that you are most proud of? It's probably overcoming that internal dialogue that just, that used to rip me apart. And now being able to be in that space where my head just can't go, I just can't do myself that disservice. And the way I like, I will literally out loud speak to myself. So the words I say, no, Sophie, we are not going there. We are not going down that spiral. I'm loved. I'm safe. I will always have my own back. It sounds maybe a bit ridiculous if you've never done it before. And actually, I would have probably laughed at myself 10 years ago thinking that I would have done this. But it's these moments of like sitting up in bed at night if I'm worried or sitting up as soon as my mind goes there. It's like and I do things like click. It's like trying to break the pattern. Stop. We are not going there. And it's been really brilliant. Mm. and it's changed your life and that's clearly why you're so proud of it as well because you feel the difference Mm. yeah and last what is a closing message that you want to give to our listeners here who are on this journey of healing and self-growth the one that that is is coming to my mind is about energy versus outcome but to give another one which is like a slightly different topic but is the idea of like you teach people how to treat you by what you tolerate 
And I think I'm sure well, my guess is because we probably have similar audiences. So many of us are people pleasers. So many of us are just saying yes and trying to accommodate other people. And we feel guilty if we say no. And just that reminder to, to really think about how you want to be treated and how, how that really teaches people having those boundaries, having that self-respect, like you're actually more of a trusted, there's been a lot of research that has gone into this for the workplace. You're a much more trusted person if you hold boundaries, if you state, state your needs and your wants. And also these people are often, you know, actually more successful by saying no to things. And I think our, the quality of our lives really do depend on the quality of our relationships and the more transparent we can be and, when we can look at ourselves and how we're showing up instead of saying well they did this to me or like I'm people are putting too much pressure on me it's like taking well what, how can I show up in this what boundaries can I put in place how can I love myself in a deeper level in order to use the use my language to explain what it is I need and want and it goes a long way in relationships absolutely and it's going to radically transform your self-worth as well massively yeah. Massively. If you're struggling with boundaries, you're struggling with your self-worth for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Sophie, thank you so much. Thank you for your realness. Thank you for your honesty, your openness about your your story, your experiences and the little nuggets of wisdom you've shared too. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all of you listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring, helpful and thought-provoking. And just a final word from me, high praise to you all for continuously choosing healing, self-awareness and growth. I totally believe in your ability to make change, surmount challenges and build a life worth dreaming about. 